In this part one of a special two-part episode, we celebrate the third birthday of GDPR by looking back over some of the key issues that have evolved over the past three years. What is GDPR? And more importantly, how does it impact you and your company? Join internationally known data privacy, data protection expert, Jonathan Armstrong and Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist to learn more about the burgeoning world of data privacy and data protection. After listening to this episode, you'll walk away with a greater understanding of what this means for you and your organization. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Jonathan Armstrong for another episode of Life Life with GDPR. In this part two of a special two-part episode, we're looking back at happy birthday to GDPR. We had the third anniversary of GDPR going live uh, late last month. We're recording this in early June 2021, and uh, we're going to take up uh, some of the key themes that Jonathan has seen evolve over the past three years. So, Jonathan, first of all, welcome back. Thanks very much, Tom. So, Jonathan, in our uh, first episode, we took a look at militancy in uh, sort of private actions involving GDPR and also regulatory enforcement actions. Uh, And today we're going to take up three additional uh, areas that you have seen evolve. And the first one is who and where you do business. How does this relate to GDPR and what evolution have you seen? Well, of course, this development goes hand in hand with the Max Schrems litigation against Facebook. And regular listeners will recall that that's been a long, long running saga, uh, which has sort of galloped alongside GDPR for the last uh, five years or so. And here, there is a requirement under GDPR to only transfer data outside of the EEA where you have adequate data uh, transfer measures in place. And one of those measures is binding corporate rules, which still hasn't really taken off as much as people envisaged, I thought, uh, I think when when, uh, GDPR came in. The other two methods uh, that were most common uh, were uh, Privacy Shield, which of course, wasn't created by uh, GDPR, but was said by the Commission to be a satisfactory measure, and standard contractual clauses, which, again, predate GDPR. Now, Privacy Shield uh, has gone, and standard contractual clauses are very much restricted. So, there's lots of activity at the moment around standard contractual clauses, and over Uh, the obligation on businesses to make sure that they have a lawful means of transferring data. For example, just today, we're recording this, as you said, on June 1st, the uh, German data protection authorities uh, aligned. Regular listeners will also remember that in Germany, there is more than one regulator. They're per lander, so per state rather than a national uh, body. And they have aligned uh, over sending questionnaires to organizations that they think transfer data from Germany to the US. So, many of our listeners can expect the thud of that on their virtual doormat soon. But we're also seeing lots of questionnaires from customers 
uh, as well, who are asking what a business's data transfer strategy is. And we're beginning to see enforcement activity. So there's uh, a, an action in Portugal in the last week or so, which involves Cloudflare being used on a website to try and stop DDoS attacks. We've had action against MailChimp, that's a popular um, uh, app that's used to send mailings uh, in Germany. And again, in Germany, we've had this threatened civil action against Amazon, uh, again, for its privacy policy not having been updated. And it's still referring to outmoded uh, methods of data transfer. Now, of course, Brexit is an added complication, and there is a temporary deal until the end of this month for data transfer from the EU to the UK and vice versa. But that's obviously a watch this space. And then additionally, this month, we're expecting uh, a European Data Protection Board to pronounce on the proposed new form of standard contractual clauses. And there'll probably be a year's grace period when these this new format is approved. But it involves much more work for organizations than the current uh, standard format. So lots and lots of work around data transfer. Some say it's a move towards data sovereignty. Some of the motivation behind this is a what would the word be? A uh, suspicion of US-based cloud providers in particular. And that trend, of course, is not unique to the EU. R Russia, China have um, data sovereignty requirements. Japan, for example, just today issued a pronouncement about Salesforce. So we're seeing continual issues around data being global, cloud being global, but regulation and enforcement being local. And I think that's going to be uh, uh, going to lead to additional stresses and strains in 2021. Jonathan, in this area, the one thing that I uh, frankly was surprised I did not see more of or I've not seen more companies embrace is contractual terms and conditions. And I say that because in the anti-corruption world, in the anti-money laundering world, uh, you've seen a lot of business response to legal or regulatory requirements. So you see in the uh, anti uh, ABC or anti-bribery anti-corruption world, uh, if you want to do business with a company, certain contractual clauses are put in place around compliance, same around uh, anti-money laundering, et cetera. Uh, is it just the maturity of those disciplines as opposed to data privacy, data protection that we haven't seen contractual clauses uh, fall into more favor, or is it perhaps something else? I, th I think it's a good question. I think for many organizations, they've perhaps not properly aligned procurement, purchasing, and compliance. So you might have procurement going off and buying something. You might have HR going off and buying uh, something. And they're not checking back with compliance to check that the right agreements are in place. I think one of the real lessons that we've learned is that there are opportunities and threats with data transfer. If you are trying to sell 
your services in particular, and you can have a coherent strategy and say, you know, we're willing to sign up on standard contractual clauses. Uh, here's what it looks like. Here are the schedules to provide exactly what we do. And by the way, we'll give you an assurance that sub-processors uh, are signed up to something similar. Then uh, we've seen a number of organizations gain market share and, uh, and, and, and you know, make inroads into difficult markets. It's interesting, I think, how some of the big players have become much easier to deal with in terms of data transfer, in terms of standard contractual clauses. And my suspicion is that that, again, is purely driven by money. Businesses that get this right can do well. Conversely, businesses who, like you say, have a sort of mosaic type approach where some people remember to do standard contractual clauses and others don't within the organization, I think are going to be in difficulty, particularly with things like today's announcement of the questionnaire. Because if the questionnaire is asking you to state exactly where you transfer data to and you miss off some destinations and the regulator finds out, then the consequences are pretty severe, uh, as we know under GDPR, potentially up to 4% of global revenue. So the, um, uh, this evolution uh, of either breaking down silos or perhaps taking a more holistic view of your obligations, rights and duties across purchasing, across sales, uh, across uh, compliance, uh, I think it's something that is uh, we're moving towards in ABC, AML, and others. Mm -hmm. Perhaps uh, we can begin to advocate that in uh, data protection slash data privacy as well. Absolutely. And these things, of course, can be unified because an organization, if you're contracting with a vendor and it doesn't know where data is, then it can't address the ABC risks properly because it doesn't know where data is and it doesn't know who it's paying to host that data, the electricity supplies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Equally, if you've got an organization that can't clearly state where its data is, then they might be a supply uh, chain risk for you. You know, if they don't know where their stuff is and they have a ransomware attack, then your production line's going to stop. So, so I think the businesses that do this well look at all of these things holistically. They look at commercial risk, they look at ABC risk, they look at modern slavery risk, they look at data privacy risk, and they look at data security risk together. So, we've had a number of clients recently where we've tried to help them develop questionnaires to capture all this data so that they can make a 360 assessment on that uh, on that potential supplier rather than just looking granular granularly at one um, aspect of it and that's good news for suppliers so Jonathan, and vendors in some cases as well because they're not repeating the same stuff all the time so the next area for exploration or review is security and um, this is one of the most interesting because you have advocated security measures uh, that cost I believe as much as uh one pound, uh, and you advocated security measures that are uh, somewhat different uh, and uh, more, more complex, yet perhaps not as 
uh, certainly not as sophisticated uh, as the one-pound uh, security measure. Uh, how how do you help a client think through the security from uh, good old-fashioned uh, paper documents all the way through to their cloud services? Well, I think for any business, they've got to look at risk and take a proportionate view on it. So whenever we're doing, for example, tomorrow, we're helping a client with a data protection impact assessment. There's no way that you're going to remove all of the security risks from that particular operation. But you've usually got to have an intelligent look at the risk and either accept it or remove it or in most cases, try and reduce it. Uh, cost, obviously, is uh, an issue. By the way, uh, one of the predictions of the European Commission that hasn't come true is that in 2012, when they announced what was um, uh, what is now GDPR, they said that there would be uh, cost savings to businesses of, uh, well, by now, it would have been 6.9 billion euros would have been saved by GDPR coming in. When I wrote my first uh, alert on what's now GDPR in uh, January 2012, it's fair to say I was somewhat skeptical about those cost savings. I did a little non-scientific survey on Twitter last week, and 85.7% of respondents told me that GDPR had cost them money. And as you say, sometimes security is going to cost you money. Sometimes uh, it isn't. Sometimes it's just a question, as we've said, of holding your vendors to account. But the world is certainly different than it was in 2012. It's different than it was 12 months ago, partly because a lot of pandemic risk is coming home to roost, but partly because those people who are attacking us have got better. If you look at attacks like ransomware, some organizations might be facing, I don't know, 2,000 attacks a year at the moment. They may be facing many more. And if you're the corporation defending yourself, you've got to get lucky 2,000 times. The attackers have only got to get lucky once, which is why we're seeing a huge rise, or one of the reasons why we're seeing a huge rise in ransomware. And we're also seeing a lot of the business model of these gangs change and migrate. So, uh, I've got into slight trouble before for saying it's a bit like the Tupperware business model. But, but I stand by that. So, what I mean by that is quite often you've got a central organization, perhaps to the east of Europe, who's creating a thing. In this case, it might be a ransomware attack. And they're using home-based groups to distribute that thing and cut them into a percentage of the revenue. Well, why is that more difficult to deal with? Well, partly because you don't get that level of predictability that you might get uh, if you're law enforcement, dealing with the same actors each time. You've got maverick groups who attack uh, health systems, like we've seen in New Zealand and Ireland in the last couple of weeks, where the central hub doesn't really want them uh, to do that. 
And you've got groups where, for law enforcement, it's a bit like whack-a-mole. If they get lucky and they uh, destroy one of these house groups or close down its operation, then there are another 20 or 30 or 40 there to take their place. So organizations have to take their security risk seriously, and they have to look at today's risk, not yesterday's risk, not last week's risk. And that's the same with ransomware, with phishing, with nation state attacks like the solar winds attack we saw uh, uh, last week. And that's why, rightly, the Biden administration are concentrating a lot of resources in this, looking at new uh, proposals which might help. By the way, in the EU, we're extending what's called the NIST directive, which is also part of that uh, effort as well. And we're likely to see new threats in 2021. Uh, we talked about this briefly before. I'm particularly worried by cyber shorting. So what is sh cyber shorting? So let's say I'm a bad ransomware gang and I'm threatening Fox Enterprises, which is a uh, listed entity. I ask you for $20 million uh, ransom. You say uh, there is no way that I'm going to pay you uh, $20 million. Uh, I say, okay, I've just released some information on the, uh, on, on the dark web. Here's a link to go and look at it. By the way, the price is now $30 million because I show you data that embarrasses you. You're still robust, and maybe you are worried by your OFAC requirements or your uh, other, uh, other compliance obligations, so you refuse to pay the ransom. What the gang then do is play your stock. So they play options. They know that, uh, I think a recent survey said that uh, knowledge of a data breach reduces the value of a listed entity by, I think the number was 18.3% over three years. So they know that they can play your stock and they'll get the rewards they don't deserve uh, for their ill-gotten gains that way. I think that is now a, a realistic form of attack. There's at least anecdotal evidence that it's happening. And why should compliance officers care? Well, firstly, because it's a new form of attack. And secondly, because from my experience, boards particularly become much more engaged when somebody is moving their uh, stock price, partly because they're worried about things like insider trading, partly, the cynic would say, because some of them are remunerated based on where the stock price is. So, um, so... Cyber shorting and a lot of these new threats, I think, are something that should be on everybody's radar. Security hasn't featured in every single GDPR case, but it's been an element in many of them. And even cases, like we said in the, uh, in the last episode, like H&M, that start with a security breach might end up elsewhere, you know, 35 million euro fine in that case, because things like transparency weren't sorted out either. So, Security is still front and center for many organizations, uh, and, and I think that will remain an ever-constant threat in, in the next 12 months or so as well. So, uh, you should feel vindicated in your uh, Tupperware analysis. The Wall Street Journal wrote about that last week, although they, they called the business model, uh, they analogized it a little bit differently than you. They viewed it more as a franchise model. 
where right. uh, the, the uh, core group of hackers would uh, distribute uh, pieces uh, of code to various groups who would then uh, actually uh, then reformulate it uh, for, for use in attacks. And then a, a portion of the a remit or proceeds of the attack was paid back to the uh, franchisor. So yeah. uh, that's an interesting business model. The other thing that struck me, Jonathan, was in addition to a little more cutting edge, there's some basic security measures, almost common sense, that we've seen companies violate. And, and I immediately think of uh, uh, the uh, grocery company that was having a uh, audit, <coughs> uh, regularly, uh, regularly scheduled audit. The auditors asked for all the information to be downloaded to disks and those yeah. disks be shipped off-site. Uh, that was one. And, and even as simple as uh, locking your briefcase or, if, you know, in the American mind of a barrister with a, a stack of files and a new case and he unties the string and opens yeah. the file and it's the next episode of, of you know, um, uh, the barrister in court day. So uh, it seems to me that some of the uh, uh, pain points uh, could be more easily remedied if companies would just pay some sort of basic common sense to how is our data being transferred? Can you do the work in our offices? Can you do the work yeah. behind our firewall or uh, other uh, things? Do you still counsel uh, clients on that issue? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, um, hard copy data, as you alluded to, is still a big risk. In some respects, hard copy data can be more damaging when lost because it's it can be easier to copy anonymously. It can be easier to get to the heart of it very quickly, and it can be easier to leak to uh, the press or, or bad actors. And we're still seeing hard copy data cases. There's a Polish enforcement action in the last 10 days or so by uh, just on use of mail, where a, um entertainment uh, uh, outfit was uh, sending letters to people, and because of COVID measures, they relaxed the uh, signature rules on delivery, and they'd been delivering stuff to the wrong people. There's a threatened uh, action, which I'm told may be in trial, uh, may be in court in the UK as early as this uh, month against a bank who uh, mailed the bank statement for a man going through a divorce to his wife, which allegedly showed what he was spending on, uh, on the other woman. So even straightforward, simple errors with, you know, post leaving stuff on trains, planes, and automobiles crop up really regularly. And businesses have to look at hard copy data as well as looking at sophisticated cyber attacks. So, Jonathan, the, uh, the, fast, uh, the last category uh, for our exploration is customers. And this is one of the most fascinating areas from a wide variety of compliance angles, or rather compliance disciplines, once again, ABC, AML, trade sanction. Uh, but now with data privacy slash data protection, what does the uh, evolution of uh, customers under GDPR that you've seen over the past three years? 
Well, I think customers are definitely getting much more engaged in uh, data privacy. They they know that a lot of the reported statistics show that many data breaches are due to errors from uh, third-party suppliers. I think personally the figures are slightly skewed because for many businesses, blaming a third party for a breach is easier than blaming yourself. But despite that, we know that third-party providers crop up in many of the cases. So I'm seeing this sort of engagement manifest itself in all sorts of different ways, in more due diligence, particularly those organizations who aren't able to state what their policy is coherently. They're spending many, many more resources replying to multiple questionnaires where you know one white paper may have fixed the issue. We're seeing more and more negotiations over contractual terms. We had a client that looked at the cost of those negotiations in dollar terms with contracts not being switched on as quickly as they were in the past. And that soon gets up to the tens of millions of dollars for larger organizations. As I've said, we're seeing data protection as a differentiator. And we're also seeing organizations look at things like the extension of the NIS regime. Uh, People will recall that this is different legislation from GDPR that covers uh, critical infrastructure, but that definition of critical infrastructure is widening. And so we're seeing uh, customers in all of those sectors get much more engaged as well on uh, GDPR and particularly around uh, data security. So I think that in some respects, customers are driving a lot of change, but investors are as well. I think that uh, some of the uh, transactions we have seen, there's much more aggression on uh, GDPR and data protection due diligence as well. Uh, That's logical because of cases like Marriott, where the successor business picked up the liability for the business that it had acquired. Uh, GDPR compliance goes to value. So if you get it right, your value will be supportable. If you get it wrong, then you can expect an investor, an acquirer, a shareholder to pay less. So there's a there's a commercial imperative to get this right as well as a compliance imperative. Well, Jonathan, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but it's uh, been a fascinating wrap-up of our Happy Birthday GDPR third anniversary uh, two-part series. Uh, I can't wait to see what we come up with next. Thanks very much, Tom. Take care. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. In the month of June, I'm visiting with Gabe Hidalgo, who had one of the most interesting paths to the CCO chair. He talks about his journey to the chair, what he learned while sitting in the CCO chair, and how he's taken those lessons into a consulting practice at K2 Integrity. I know you will find it fascinating. 
I hope you will join Jonathan Armstrong and I in two weeks when we are back with another episode of Life with GDPR. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.